and welcome to Neurotives, the podcast where each episode we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction and talk about the real world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho and with me is Nick Halper. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Nick. We're back. I know. We had a long restful Christmas break, I guess. Yeah, the break was a little longer than I was intending, but uh, that's okay. Stuff happens. (laughs) It's good to be back. It is. You know, the funny thing is, because I suck at sequencing, like, I think there's a decent chance this will not actually be the first episode of 2022. (laughs) So we're going to be doing a few things a little bit differently every now and then here on Narratives for the new year. And one of those things is going to be um, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, like this time, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the movie or the TV show or whatever before we actually watch it. Um, And, you know, we'll talk about what interested us about this movie, what brought us here to why we're talking about it, uh, what we sort of expect and what we know about it, you know, if one of us has seen it already or otherwise. Yeah, I think it's going to be super fun to capture, I guess, the the kind of surprise or difference upon, you know, what our expectations of this movie were and actually... Uh, seeing it because some of these ones some of the movies we watched on this podcast have been completely different than what i expected so looking forward to it so for this episode uh nick you actually suggested this uh this this movie yeah so (laughs) steven and i were brainstorming you know while having some tacos uh what the next neuro movie we should do is and i was like oh we should dig to something that's like you know back to animation uh, something like the inside out episode and i remembered uh, a, a movie I saw as a child called The Secret of NIM, or at least I think that's how they say it in there. NIMH being the National Institute of Mental Health, which is an animated movie about some lab rats. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so I was immediately on board with this. Um, I have not seen The Secret of NIM myself. I, I have read the book, that it, the children's novel that it is based on. It's based on the book Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIM. And my memory of the book is that it's surprisingly dark. I just remember some happy rats escaping a lab. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that's what I'm coming into this with. (laughs) I mean, so I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. I'm not like looking at the plot, so I don't spoil too much um, by myself. But one thing I want to note here is that it was directed by Don Bluth. Now... (laughs) (laughs) Which Stephen reminded me is the same person who did Brave Little Toaster... Which really changed the the tone. I was actually wrong about that. He didn't do Bravest Little Toaster, but um, he did do other sort of like traumatizing children's movies like The Land Before Time. Oh, God. Um, okay. Yeah. Remember Littlefoot's mother dying? Like, yeah. That scene is super messed up. American Tale, allegory for like anti-Jewish pogroms in Russia and the immigrant experience in like early 1900s America, except mm. with mice. Um, this and all dogs go to heaven. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that movie continues to traumatize me even now. I basically remember nothing else about all dogs go to heaven other than like it made me profoundly sad as a child. <laughs> well, I my expectations for this movie are changing as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is Don Bluth also did um, Anastasia and that movie rules. Yeah, that's like the weird Disney movie that nobody talks about for some reason. Well, it's not technically Disney. Oh, that's why. Yeah, it's not technically Disney. It was like Disney's like rival at the time, and it's really good. It is good. 
So I'm looking forward to this because like, you know, a hand-drawn animation, that sort of classic animation style, I, I wish we had more of those, you know, these days. As much as I like what you can do with the CGI medium, you know, the, there's something about those classic hand-drawn like panels and, and that animation style. Yeah, I think claymation has the same kind of nostalgia to me. I used to love making like claymation videos when I was younger. And so claymation always hits that spot for me. So um, let's also talk a little bit about what the NIMH actually is, the National Institutes of Mental Health. So this is a real thing. Yeah, it's a real place. And it's one of many such institutes that address other areas of health under the National Institutes of Health. That, that's right. And so the National Institutes of Health, anyone sort of in the neuro world or neuro adjacent, you know, has probably interacted in some way with the NIMH or um, another major institute, the National Institute for Neurological Disease and Stroke, NINDS. Those are NIMH and NINDS are the two big neuro things in NIH. And the National Institute of Aging. Oh, really? Yeah. Somewhat. They deal with dementia a lot, so there's a lot of like neurodegenerative diseases that fall into that category. Gotcha. So we're going to be talking about lab rats a lot. So anyone that uh, doesn't have <laughs> anyone that gets very very sad at the idea of lab animals, um, well, this will probably not help. This is not the episode for you. <laughs> Turn away. So given that NIMH does a lot of work with mental health, you know, I think they, I mean, alcoholism is like, is a big thing of what they do in addiction. Um, I don't, I can't tell you how many like posters I've seen at the Society for Neuroscience of people like on NIMH grants, like getting their rats drunk. Oh yeah. There's all sorts of drugs the rats take. I, I mean, I don't know that I expect this children's movie to have drug addicted rats, but I, don't, I mean, it is Don Bluth after all. My understanding is it's like they're going to take some drug, right? This is going to be like cognition enhancing drug or something, right? Because they're talking rats. And I think mm -hmm. the theme is that they're talking rats. They're not just like animated character rats. Right. It, well, okay. So so I am reaching into my memory about the uh, about the book, and I don't know how much you want me to like talk about it. I'm, go for it. Like Mrs. Frisbee is actually a mouse. Um, she's not a rat herself. No. And my memory from the book is that her husband, her deceased husband, who is a mouse, by the way. The, the mouse's deceased husband. Okay. <laughs> yes. So Mrs. Frisbee's um, deceased husband was a mouse, just like a random mouse at NIMH. And he did something to help those rats like escape NIMH. And that's why those super smart rats are now like doing her a favor and helping her out of this situation that she's in. And that's the like plot. Okay. Um, got it. <laughs> yep. So, so it's funny because when I heard the title like Miss Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, I just assumed that it was like, uh, what was the magic school bus? The teacher's name, Miss Frizzle. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was something like that. Like some, some woman who owned some rats or got some rats from Nim. Yeah. So I don't know how closely the, the movie will adhere to the book, but that is like the premise of the book. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, which specific uh, neuroenhancing drug they take and uh, adverse events associated with it. I am looking forward to being emotionally broken by this movie. <laughs> I'm certain it's going to happen. Hey, as long as nothing bad happens to the rats, I'll be fine. <laughs> it's going to be fine, right, Steven? <laughs> <laughs> Steven?
Okay. Well, with that, we're going to sign off here for the time being. And um, you know, for the listeners, it'll be like no time at all. But uh, we will be talking to you from the future for us, I guess. Ooh. Five minutes later. Hi, everyone. We're back. And oh, God, Nick, we're, we're monsters. <laughs> this, yeah, this was a, this is a movie. <laughs> it was very different than I remember or thought. Okay, let's pull on that thread. What was the biggest difference and what took you the most off guard? First off, the movie does not occur in the lab at all. Like when you think about like lab rats and the lab rats of NIM or NIMH, I was like, I thought they were going to be in the lab. Like, <laughs> I mean, you get a brief sequence of them in a lab. Yeah, and it's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, the movie takes place in a field outside of a farmer's house, uh, which immediately is context you would have if you read the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know how much I talked about this in the pre-discussion sequence, but um, Secret of Nim, based on the book Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, uh, written in 1971, winner of the Newbery Medal, and animated by Don Bluth. Fun factoid about Don Bluth, his family moved to Utah when he was six and he grew up in Payson. Oh, so that's why he makes these <laughs> sad things? <laughs> sad. Uh, I, I don't know, but he was, for a large part of his career, a longtime Disney animator. Oh, okay. He was the chief animator on Robin Hood. Oh, wow. So he's, in my mind, indirectly responsible for furries being a thing. He also worked on The Rescuers and the Winnie the Pooh movies before going independent. And when I was researching him, he made an independent sort of test short film called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And it's set in Payson, Utah. And this cat like jumps on a truck and travels to Salt Lake City. And that's about the shenanigans that this cat gets into. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, we don't get movies set in Utah. No. Even when there are many movies are shot in Utah, but they don't want to be set in Utah. Yeah, it, it's like uh, it's like Vancouver, the city that never plays itself, right? So at that point, I knew I had to see this movie somehow. Well, this is, it's like this random independent animated short film. So you can't stream it anywhere, but you can get it on DVD. So I bought it on DVD for $10. And then I remember that I don't have a fucking DVD player. Oh, no. And so I own a copy of Banjo the Woodpile Cat, and I have no way to watch the stupid thing. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I really want to watch that. And I own a DVD player. So let's make it happen. All right, cool. But uh, this is not this is not about Banjo the Woodpile Cat. This is about the secret of Nim. <laughs> Basically, you were taken off guard by the fact that this didn't take place in Nim. I mean, that was yeah one of the first things that took me off guard. Didn't you say you had seen this movie before? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My memory is not great. I need the cognitive enhancement that the rats got. Okay, fair enough. So I think what took me the most off guard was. I think we ha we spent some time talking about how we expected this to be dark. Yes, that's true. You you said something like it doesn't end well for the rats. <laughs> yeah, and so and so I think when we run through the synopsis, I'll talk about like where it deviated from my expectations because there is sort of one acute, relatively dark event that happens near the end of the book mm. that doesn't take place in this movie now what i will say is this movie is actually like 
fairly dark in that there isn't like one acute traumatizing event like in say another of Don Bluth's movies, The Death of Littlefoot's Mother, where she just gets she just gets like maimed by a T-Rex in full view of the audience. Yeah. Uh yeah, this is the trauma is spread throughout the movie. A nice they dose it out. The entire movie is just fairly high stress through the entire duration of the movie. Yeah, it's true. And I think this is I mean, the movie is dark in that way and that it's in that it's high stress and not exactly like a positive cheerful like woodland creatures movie, but it's it's also that the shooting and like coloring and like I don't know, just like the characters of the movie are all a little off. <laughs> a lot of this takes place like underground and mm-hmm. like in sort of dark environments where it's rainy and and even just thematically like um none of the characters are in good situations. <laughs> yeah, like everybody is having a hard time. <laughs> I would say that The Lion King probably is the darkest of like the Disney Renaissance movies. Yeah, Lion King is pretty dark. It's like very sad in some parts. <laughs> yes. But it's also like sort of cadenced, so there are highs and lows in between, right? You have, you know, that initial stressful sequence where Simba and Nala are chased by the hyenas through that through the Shadowlands, but then, you know, you have moments of triumph with Mufasa rescuing them even after Mufasa dies, which is profoundly sad and traumatic. You still have like the joys of Hakuna Matata and and just the presence of Timon and Pumbaa, right? And then there's just sort of an ebb and a flow to this. Right. Secret of Nim is just like, ugh, everybody's just really <laughs> in a high-stress situation for basically the entire movie. Yeah, it's true. I, I think you can try to interpret some parts of the movie more positively. Like there's some sort of like courageous growth of Miss Frisbee. <laughs> Right. And I do actually want to comment on one thing. You'll remember that the character in the movie is known as Mrs. Brisby. Yeah. Yeah. Not Mrs. Frisbee. Damn it, Steven. Apparently that was done <laughs> to avoid any like sort of copyright dispute with Whammo Sports, the makers of the Frisbee toy. <laughs> wow. So that was actually a, a problem. Okay. I don't understand why it would be. <laughs> but apparently that was the reason it was done. Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. This book was purportedly inspired by the research of John B. Calhoun at Nim, who studied rodent population dynamics and behavior in overcrowded environments for mice. Oh, so there's like yep. an actual scientific inspiration for this. Maybe. Like the only source I could find was this this obituary for from John B. Calhoun. Sure. Well, shall we get into it then? Yeah. Let's talk about the Rats of Nim. So we start with... Oh, okay, actually, before we get started, this movie is beautifully animated. Yes. The character like motion is super dynamic. There's a lot of personality into the animation, but also just the level of, I don't know, painting or drawing detail and like the environments they put the characters in is amazing. Right. And if... I were to like point out every instance in which this was the case, we would never stop talking about how how great this movie looks. So just take it as a given that this movie looks beautiful. It looks amazing. We start with a voiceover from an unknown narrator with super creepy hands. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they're all like speckled and like uh, and there's claws and it's like yeah, cognitively I know this thing's a rat, but like even so, I can't just help but think it's just like a really creepy dude with like claw hands 
uh, any mo- yeah they don't just look creepy the hands act creepy <laughs> <laughs> yeah like so he's writing in a book with a magic ink and quill and he's using his left hand to like i don't know telepathically move sparkle ink onto his quill and then writes into a book yeah we i know we're like five seconds into the synopsis but we have to talk about this <laughs> yep <laughs> there's magic which is not what i thought an element was gonna be this movie that is not a thing in this in the book <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say i mean it, it's like unnecessary magic not to like spoil how magic is used through the whole film but it's like in no way functionally useful to the plot or like anything of the story yeah yeah i completely agree and that's not like a oh well you deviated from the book it's like no it's just from like making the movie maybe like more palatable to children in that you have like visual elements that pop and now like you know you have a mystical element just because i guess children like that maybe there's a reason to do it but from like a narrative point of view i it doesn't work for me and we'll talk we'll touch on this later because there's some more magic that we see (laughs) (laughs) this narrator is talking about a jonathan he's like oh jonathan you died today i'm so sorry uh uh, your wife will be so sad he's writing that in the book and then he signs the book as nicodemus and then he places an amulet into a box nicodemus in the book is just like he's just a leader of the rats he's not magical he's not a rat wizard (laughs) i i kind of like him this way though especially with that name (laughs) fair enough cut to gorgeous hand-painted animation cells with a farm and the farm equipment i mean we then go to seeing a mouse named mrs brisby who is visiting another mouse and this mouse is named mr ages and he lives in a really gnarly looking like broken down combine harvester this combine harvester looks like mean as hell yeah everything about it's a little menacing uh it kind of reminded me of the fern goalie and like the all the like tree chopping equipment and like the industrial group in Ferngoli. That was the vibe the tractor gave off to me. Mrs. Brisby has gone to seek out Mr. Ages because her son Timothy is sick. And Mr. Ages is is this sort of like, uh, you know, grouchy old man kind of doesn't have time for her, but true, but deep down apparently has a heart of gold. And so he agrees to supply her with medication for her sick son and diagnoses Timothy with pneumonia and insists that Timothy must have at least three weeks of bed rest for recovery. So right off the bat, Mr. Ages unambiguously is a mouse physician. And an engineer Mm -hmm. and a magician. Magician? (laughs) He, He has like the same sparkly stuff that Nicodemus is working with. This guy has all around his like workshop. Huh. I don't know if that's like, he doesn't use magic. But it seemed to be suggested as he had similar capabilities. I mean, he definitely has electricity. And then there's like things that look like Erlenmeyer flasks or like the spherical chemistry containers. I don't know what those are called. And they're like bubbling stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So there is very clearly science going on. True. One bit that I liked was as he's bringing her into his home, there's a sign above the entrance to his home and it says welcome. And then beneath it in bigger letters, it says go away. Mrs. Brisby having gotten this diagnosis and being supplied with this medicine from Mr. Ages, uh, she's on her way back home and she encounters a crow tangled in string named Jeremy and attempts to free him. And Nick, if you're looking at the same line in my notes as I am, you can already tell I hate Jeremy. I hate him so much. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just a crow, man. It's a silly crow. Jeremy makes every situation he's inserted into worse. I mean, that's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and I hate it. <laughs> uh, Jeremy is tangled up in a bunch of string. It's It looks weirdly like uh, Shibari, like Japanese rope bondage. Now that you say that, that is what it reminded me of. But to be clear, there is absolutely nothing sexual about this situation. It's meant to be played for laughs, but um, I'm weird and I hate every part of it because Jeremy is just an absolute piece of shit. And as Mrs. Brisby is trying to free him, he panics and manages to attract the attention of the farm's resident barn cat, Dragon. I'm going to assume that Banjo the Woodpile Cat looks like Dragon. Um... I hope not, but I'm going to assume it. So Dragon looks like some of the um, bad cats from An American Tale, the ones that are supposed to be analogs for anti-immigrant uh, nativists. But let me actually grab my DVD copy of Banjo the Woodpile Cat and show you real quick. <laughs> okay, so this is Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Oh, that doesn't look like Dragon. <laughs> yeah, so this is Banjo right here. Okay. This is, I, I don't know who this is. I haven't, as again, I haven't seen this movie. I, it's, it's literally not even like removed from the wrapping. So <laughs> Banjo is actually a kitten and um, Dragon is a mean old barn cat. Yeah, I, I, I feel like you're not emphasizing how deranged Dragon is. <laughs> Dragon looks like a cross between a feral badger and a bear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, Dragon is a very large cat. More than anything, he's like very like, he's just like a cylinder. <laughs> yeah, he's thick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Dragon chases after Jeremy and Mrs. Brisby. They narrowly manage to escape Dragon, but in the process, Mrs. Brisby loses the medicine that Mr. Ages has given to her, much to her dismay, because that was the medicine that was going to save her child's life. And now she doesn't have it anymore. And her expressions here are just like, I never thought I would feel this bad for a sad animated mouse. I think it's because the voice actress is so great, partially, also. I mean, the animation is good, but the voice actress killed it. Yes, I agree with that completely. She has like this sort of breathy quality to her voice, I think, that just is very sympathetic. Mm -hmm. So she's just inconsolable over this. And you know, as we just mentioned, both the voice acting and the animation really, really kind of like, you know, tug at your heartstrings over this. And maybe this is why I don't like Jeremy, because Jeremy was like, hey, what's up, Mrs. B? Good thing we got away from that cat, right? Aren't I awesome about how I helped us get away from that cat? And I'm just like, I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah, it, I think beyond that, too, it's it's the fact that he's like, it's weird to call Jeremy a womanizer, but he like, cause, cause he's not, but he like talks about the, wanting to find love and trying to get with girl crows and whatever else, like the entire movie. Yeah. He asks uh, Mrs. Brisby for advice. I mean, that's the main reason he's trying to follow her around is so that she as a woman can tell him as a man crow how to like <laughs> win over a girl crow. Um, but you know what? In all of this, Jeremy somehow randomly found Timothy's medicine and gives it back to Mrs. Brisby, just, you know, much to her relief. So it's all okay. So Jeremy is a character in the book. I have no memory of hating him as much as I do in this movie, but 
I do remember that he was a thing in the book. So we have a next little scene with the Brisby children. Do you remember their names? I mean, there's Timothy, who is like the plot reason of the problem. And then there's Martin. And then there's Girl Mouse. Teresa? Sure. So uh, we have a scene with the Brisby children, Teresa, Timothy, and Martin. And then they are encountering Auntie Shrew, who seems to be a sort of community leader. And she has something to tell Mrs. Brisby. And But Auntie Shrew is unfortunately a judgmental Karen who just sucks. And... Um, she berates the children for talking back. I mean, to be fair, Martin wasn't exactly being a great child. <laughs> yeah, but she's also an adult and should be able to deal with these situations. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, you know, she berates the children and is about to storm off in a huff uh, when Mrs. Brisby arrives and deals with the situation like an adult. <laughs> and she's informed that, quote unquote, moving day is coming soon we'll find out in some time what that means um and then there's this like brief little musical interlude with this song as mrs brisby is administering the children and uh holy crap this movie is like very direct with the way that the children are interacting with timmy and like his sickness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah this movie doesn't like (laughs) dance around like is timmy gonna be okay like hey mom is timmy gonna die today (laughs) It's like verbatim. Like what? (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, good for Don Bluth, I guess. You know, like these are, I think, issues that children should be aware of and perhaps should be exposed to and understand in some way. Yeah. This like theme or whatever you want to call it, openness will continue (laughs) through the film as we find. Yeah. The children are actually kind of great in this movie, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah. They're a little bit of lightheartedness, but they also like, I don't know. I, I think they like draw attention to certain themes in the movie, like Timmy's sickness or like the shrews, like role in the community or other things like in a good pointed way. All this is happening as night is falling and there's a farmhouse scene as you see the shadowed silhouettes of some rats, like sneaking around tunneling a cord from a farmhouse to a rose bush outside the house. And at that time, you also hear the farmer's wife mentioning that a man from an organization named Nim had called the house asking whether they had noticed anything unusual about the rats on the farm. And husband does not care <laughs> about this at all. Seemingly. No, he's just like, oh, well, the traps don't work. Well, whatever. So <laughs> I also think it's funny that in this movie, the rats of Nim. This is the first time you like see or hear of the rats, I guess, besides Nicodemus at the very beginning. (laughs) And this is like 30 something minutes into the movie. Yeah. So what is the secret of Nim here? (laughs) I guess we don't quite find that out, but. No, I don't think you really get much of it during this. You just know that the rats are doing stuff with electricity and that they came from Nim and that the people from Nim are coming to find them, maybe, or like want to. Right. So. So they're very much sort of characterized as the antagonist at the moment. So should we talk a little bit about uh, Nim? I think we talked a little bit briefly about it in the um, pre-sequence, but that was a that was two weeks ago, and I don't remember what we talked about, and um, I can always just fix it in editing if we are too repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Nim, uh, the National Institutes, or National Institute of Mental Health, which is as Steven said, um, under the National Institutes of Health. 
in the United States, which are just a group of organizations that basically facilitate health policy and research into their like different like disciplines. And the National Institute of Mental Health handles exactly what you would imagine, which is everything related to mental health. <laughs> so almost all neuroscience research taking place at academic centers in the United States, almost all of that has interacted with NIM, NIMH or NINDS in one way or another, or has been funded in some way by NIMH or NINDS. But in addition to being a funding agency, um, they also have intramural research institutes themselves. And so there are plenty of researchers and research labs at NIMA, at uh, NIM. Does anybody actually call it NIM? Actually, I've always said NIMH. Yeah, I've always said NIMH as well. And maybe that was what they intended to. Do they even say NIM in the movie? Yeah, they say they do say NIM. The li- okay. And having seen the movie twice in the past week, I now find it odd to not say NIM. <sighs> well, I don't know. Uh, okay, well, at some point, I I may look very, very stupid while talking to somebody from the NIH, but till that, we just won't worry about it. We'll call them NIM. <laughs> yeah, so NIM, they do neuroscience research. They fund neuroscience research. And um, in the world of this movie, they are looking for these rats that they have so, so irresponsibly experimented on with unexpected consequences. And that's all we know so far. Yep. You know, it's interesting because like, I don't think there's any expectation that anyone watching this movie in the intended audience would know what NIMH is, right? No, and I, that's why I feel like it's NIM. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, like, it's not a very public-facing organization. No, certainly not. It, it's also interesting that, like, they were even permitted to use the actual abbreviation and there was no objection from, you know, any from the governmental entity itself or, you know, the, or the parent organization, NIH. Yeah. I mean, especially given the subject matter of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say is I don't, I think no lies were told. (laughs) Yeah. Besides the basis of cognitive enhancement, but well, (laughs) yeah. Okay. But I mean, I mean, they're not accusing them of irresponsibly making rats smarter. That's not the crime here. The crime here is the act is the entire basis of animal research. True. Spoilers, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, The next morning, um, we finally find out what moving day is. And holy crap, this is like also really stressful because what is moving day, Nick? Yeah, so moving day is when they get ready to plow the fields and basically destroy all of the animals' homes. <laughs> That's my interpretation of moving day. Yep. So it's it's when the the farmer boots up the the plow and uh, everybody has to leave. But the problem, as we find, is that moving day suddenly came much earlier than uh, the shrew expected. Right. And so if you'll recall, viewer, our mouse physician mr ages was very clear to mrs brisby that timmy cannot be moved he is far too sick to be moved and so this is a problem because he obviously cannot be left to be dismembered by the plow either that's not an acceptable situation so mrs brisby and shrew managed to temporarily disable the tractor by like i don't know gnawing through a fuel line or something yeah but it was a crazy scene i mean 
the plow is like presented as unstoppable force, you know, like destroys your homes, etc. And Miss Brisby is like, oh, I'm going to go stop it. I have to, to save Timmy. And she like fails. Uh, but Miss Shrew, whatever her name is, just shows up and like wrecks the tractor. Like she's done it a million times. <laughs> yeah. So good for her. I'm sorry. I called her a Karen. <laughs> she cares at heart. But the thing is like, you can fix tractors, right? Yes. So they need to find a more permanent solution. And so Auntie Shrew suggests that Mrs. Brisby ask the great owl for advice. Now, if we know anything about owls, it's that they eat small woodland rodents. Only at night, as Jeremy would say. (laughs) So Jeremy takes Mrs. Brisby to the great owl. This entire scene is also like kind of disturbing in many ways. The owl's lair isn't a fun place. (laughs) (laughs) there's tons and tons of small rodent skeletons all around the owl's lair there's just a lot of super creepy imagery and then so there's a spider who is the size of mrs brisby um and so i mean mice are small right but a spider the size of a mouse is a profoundly large spider and this spider is the size of mrs brisby (laughs) and it looks mean but then the owl just shows up and like crushes this spider but it's not like a fade to black or like cut away kind of crushing the spider no they show the owl grabbing the spider in its talons squeezing and just crushing that and squeezing that spider into goo and they show the goo yeah and then they don't even like pan away from that to to then like go back to the scene they just zoom out and include the crushed spider while the owl like talks to Miss Brisby. <laughs> oh God, they're just like, look at this, look at this goo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is messed up. And I, I don't know if you remember like Mrs. Brisby's face of sheer terror on watching the uh, spider get crushed, but like it's, it's just really good. Yeah, they they show it off well. So one thing I want to talk about here in terms of character design When you're animating like a movie that is about animals, there's a couple different directions you can go, right? You can sort of go the Robin Hood anthropomorphic animal, kind of like Bugs Bunny or Lola Bunny or something like that in Space Jam. Hmm. That is not this movie. No, they're pretty um, animal-like. I mean, Miss Brisby like stands up and walks around, but like she moves and acts like a mouse. She has like mouse face and features and body She has mouse paws that do mouse things. Mm -hmm. Although she wears a little red cape the entire time, and it's really adorable. Yeah, I was going to say it's a cute cape. But the evil characters, I think, are like somehow slightly less animal or like they're like their evil features are accentuated. Like the owl is like hulking and like moves kind of not how owls move. Like it moves like it's heavy and kind of scary. And has glowing eyes and everything. Similarly, like Dragon the Cat, thick cylinder badger cat. <laughs> like, yeah. So there's like some liberties taken. The owl, I remember being a thing from the book. I do not know why they, whether they explain why the owl is in this position of wisdom of knowing what to do and why. I don't know if that was explained in the book. I, I, I just don't remember. <laughs> but I mean, I thought it was just like a owls are wise. That That is the trope around owls, right? Yeah. It's somewhat subverted by the idea that like, by just how this owl is presented as just being terrifying and just 
extremely threatening. Like the owl kills someone right in front of us because if we sort of assume that animals are sentient in this world and they unambiguously are, yeah, then that spider just like died and we should probably feel bad for it. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh especially given that the fear of this whole time is that the owl is going to eat Miss Brisby. Yeah. Cuz like everybody like even the people who told her to go to the owl were kind of like yeah, that's like an unknown. Like you're going to have to risk this if you want to save Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, uh another thing I want to mention is Nicodemus the entire time has been apparently watching Mrs. Brisby through like a scrying orb. Yeah. Which also is unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, and he's someone else that says, "Aha. Yes, you should go watch. You could go talk to the great owl even though he might eat you." Do it. Yes. Profit may be gained, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's something. So Mrs. Brisby informs the owl of her plight, and the owl gives fairly bad advice at first. Um, he's just like, move your home. Okay, great. Thanks. So as he's leaving, he's like, I bid you good night, Mrs. And then, you know, she's like, Mrs. Brisby. We never learned her first name, do we? Uh, she has no first name oh. in this movie, but fans have given her the name of the voice actress, Elizabeth. Okay. Miss Elizabeth Brisby. You know what? She seems like an Elizabeth. Seems fitting. So once the owl learns her last name, he takes an interest in her. And he offers her one last piece of advice and says, go seek out the rats in the rose bush and they will help you move your house and ask for Nicodemus. So we then jump to Mrs. Brisby sneaking into the rose bush and she encounters Jeremy... And she quickly dismisses Jeremy and tells him to go away. And she enters the rose bush. And this rose bush is like super trippy. There's like flashing lights everywhere. There's like weird tentacles. Yeah, I did not know what was going on. There's like electricity and flashing lights and things glowing and things like moving and pulsing. <laughs> and the whole thing is like maze-like too. I mean, like, it's a rose bush. She's a mouse, so she's small. But, like, it seems gigantic. <laughs> she goes through a lot. Okay, so I want to come back to that in, like, five minutes. But she encounters a large spear-wielding rat. And one thing I actually like is that they preserve the size difference between rats and mice. It, it just makes sense to me because they are very different sizes. Yeah, I mean, I agree. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> they did that. So this uh, large spear-wielding rat attacks her and chases her off. After being chased off, she encounters, of all people, Mr. Ages in this rosebush. And he's just like hanging out in this terrifying rosebush. And he seems to know the rats and Nicodemus. And he begrudgingly agrees to take her to Nicodemus, who has been watching her. So this is true. But his reaction at first is a little bit odd because he basically was like, whoa, what are you doing here, Miss Brisby? You got to get out of here. You can't be here. Yeah. Like suggesting yeah. that it is dangerous for her. And then she's like, oh, the great owl sent me. And he's like, what? You went to the great owl and lived? Okay, let's let's go. And I didn't, I didn't fully understand that like interaction, I guess. Like, I don't know why the great owl is like the key card to the rat sanctuary, but it proves to be as we see later. And to your point where you said this place, the thing seems a little weirdly big. As 
Mr. Ages is like leading Mrs. Brisby through this rose bush. Uh, she makes the comment, is it always so dark? And then Mr. Ages reply is, we're down three feet, which I love because it just like, it, it seems like such a small amount, but like these are mice after all, right? <laughs> mice are tiny. Yeah, true. Then as they're making their way through the rose bush, we are introduced to Justin, the rat's captain of the guard. He's a handsome, cheerful fellow. <laughs> you know. uh, for a rat, I guess. <laughs> so Justin, similarly to the great owl, um, once he learns her name and that she is the widow of Jonathan Brisby, takes an interest in her. Yeah, I just it's, I could have commented on this at any point, but I'm going to say it here. <laughs> the fact that you don't know her first name because she's only referred to as Mrs. Jonathan Brisby it is it kind of insulting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> All the rats have first names. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. Oh, maybe that's actually just the signifier. Jonathan had a name because he was... Oh, I don't want to spoil it. Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Well, I'll get to that in a moment. So we're almost there. We're almost there. I promise. (laughs) Justin, like I said, takes an interest in her after he learns who she was previously married to and reveals that the rats are ashamed of stealing electricity from the farmer when Mrs. Bridley comments on like all these amazing things around her. And... So they don't love that they're stealing and they don't love their dependence on humanity. And so, and this all is like, it's like a mini city in some ways. Like, oh yeah, that's only accessible by bathysphere. It's like straight out of Bioshock. (laughs) That's right. It's basically, oh God, what was the name of the city? Rapture. Rapture. That's right. Yes, that's right. (laughs) This is rat rapture. Rapture, if you will. So they are going down to Rapture in the in the rat colony. Uh, they're debating a plan to leave Rapture and move to a place called Thorn Valley and rebuild their colony completely independently. And and you kind of learn, like this isn't too much of a spoiler of what's going to be next. You, you kind of learn that the reason they don't want to take electricity from the farmer is because like they saw themselves as just living off of man's work previously, like stealing bread in the city or whatever before they became intelligent rats. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's like, it's kind of interesting that they have the concept of kind of like pride in their own work. It's like one of the signs of their intelligence, I guess. There is a dissident named Jenner who objects to these plans. And I do not remember Jenner being a major character in the book. I remember that he is briefly mentioned, but I don't. I think he's only mentioned in passing. So I think they beefed up his role for the um, for the movie. Mm. Mrs. Brisby is introduced to the council as the widow of Jonathan Brisby, and um, the rats. You know, as with the rest of the movie, once they learn this, they are uh, they immediately show deference and respect for her plight including Jenner, but uh, Jenner has ulterior motives for wanting to do this and help her move her home. Yes, he's a saboteur. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned this before, but Mrs. Brisby's home is basically just like a large cinder block. And so what Jenner wants to do is he wants to cause an accident during this move to kill the leader of the rats, Nicodemus, and then he will be the leader of the rats. Um, we have a brief interlude with uh, Jeremy and the shrew, um, 
Jeremy has somehow managed to find himself tied up again. And then the Brisby children torment the tied up Jeremy. And every moment of that is awesome. (laughs) He's just a crow. It's a cartoon crow. (laughs) (laughs) So Mrs. Brisby is taken to see Nicodemus, who, as we mentioned before, is a magical rat wizard. And now we finally get to the big reveal of what is the secret of Nim. Yeah. Nicodemus tells some stories, which he is the right person in the movie to tell stories. The rat wizard with the books and the cloak uh, lays out the story of the rats. Nicodemus reveals to Mrs. Brisby that the rats and some mice were captured from the streets and experimented on by Nim, resulting in their remarkable intelligence. And so because of their remarkable intelligence, they figured out how to escape and they tried to escape through some air ducts. Um, unfortunately, mice are small. <laughs> I, yeah. The, again, this movie does not shy away from death. And it's like, it's kind of odd how quickly it's passed through in this story. Like this horrific thing that happens. Because as Nicodemus is telling the story, he like, you first off, you get the shots of like the nims labs and there's all these like sad animals that shows like sad monkeys cowering in the corner and like it's really messed up you know what's the most messed up by and large it's like not inaccurate in many ways (sighs) yeah we'll 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 get into it (laughs) (laughs) maybe now is the time i don't know well let's finish the explanation of the uh of of what the deal is with the rats and is right right so we get all these sad scenes and then we show the rats and the mice getting injected, like just belly shot with this needle. And this makes them intelligent. They go to escape. They're trying to go through the air vents. And then Nicodemus is just like casually like, yeah, there was 20 rats and 11 mice. And nine of the mice got sucked down the air vents and died in the like deep recesses of Nim. He's, I think he said the fans killed them or something, right? Yeah. I mean, you see them as they're like being sucked away and like the look of horror on their face as they're like, you know, trying to claw out. <laughs> it's, it's super disturbing yeah and he's just like so that happened and then we like (laughs) got out (laughs) and so all but two mice were sucked into the air ducts and then because mice are smaller than rats the mice were able to sort of like squeeze through like a cage and unlock a latch to the outside allowing them to escape so and these two mice were mrs brisby's husband jonathan and mr ages which explains why he's a rat physician engineer chemist whatever (laughs) unfortunately uh jonathan was killed several years later drugging dragon the barn cat because that is how the rats steal electricity they drug dragon and then they run that cord out so this is the reason that the rats have so much deference towards and respect for mrs brisby because they owe a basically like a sort of a life debt, if you will, towards uh, towards Jonathan, who both allowed them to escape and then died helping them. Right. And apparently did something for the Great Owl to earn the Great Owl's respect as well at some point. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then Nicodemus gives Mrs. Brisby a magical amulet, and there's no explanation of what this thing is or why it is magical, but he simply says that it will activate when worn by somebody with a courageous heart. Yeah. This amulet also is like, I don't know, like the animation of this movie is like, like you said, all good. The amulet is weird, though, because it's like a size changing amulet, (laughs) depending on like when it's like held by Nicodemus versus when it's on Mrs. Brisby versus like when she sets it down. It like 
now that I think about it, it would have it would have to be absolutely tiny in Nicodemus's hands, like comically tiny. And I have no memory of that. Yeah. When Miss Brisby takes it from him, I think she takes it with both hands and it's like this big thing. And then she like puts it on and it turns into like a locket. Yeah. Around her neck. It's, it's like strange. at first it's like one of those like Flava Flav clocks around her neck yeah. and then it's like <laughs> shrinks somehow. Okay. I mean, it's a magical amulet. Oh, yeah. I'll give it it. Whatever. I think the most memorable quote for me in this whole sort of monologue is where Nicodemus basically says something like, the mice and the rats were subjected to torture to satisfy scientific curiosity. Yeah, he says unspeakable tortures. And I think we need to unpack this. Yeah, I think it's time. We knew we were going to get here. (laughs) All right, it's time to learn how the sausage is made. (laughs) Metaphorical sausage. Nobody's making rat or mouse sausage out there, I hope. Oh, God. Not yet. Um, So taking a look at the NIMS profile on the villains wiki oh yes (laughs) they're classified as an evil organization because of their role in this movie (laughs) Um, but there's a nice little line that says how evil they are depends on the viewer considering their experimental results and how helpful they actually are to society as a whole so we're going to enter this with that idea in mind (laughs) okay so so far in this podcast i mean we have We have touched on animal research and talked about animal research, but we really haven't kind of delved into the ethical implications and really sort of the ethical basis of animal research. If the idea is that all animal research is inherently a terrible thing and not morally justifiable, you know, that's a fair enough take. And some people have that take. Exactly. And I understand the basis for that take. But that's not necessarily a lens that we're going to look at animal research through here. So rats and mice are by far the most common laboratory animal. It's estimated that there are about 20 million rats and mice used in research per year, making up 95% of research animals. And for the most part, other than cartoons and stuff, people don't particularly like them, if we're being honest. You know, they've certainly killed their fair share of people with, you know, the Black Death and plague and all that. Sure, sure. This is one way to look at this. Balance of numbers. (laughs) To be clear, I am not trying to, you know, frame this as retribution for the Black Death in the, you know, 1400s or whatever. There's also biological aspects of rats and mice that make them a useful animal model for basically everything. Um, You can basically breed them. They have, they reach sexual maturity quite quickly so that when you are breeding them for certain traits there's very quick turnover between generations and oh god i sound like the bad guy here (laughs) i'm not helping am i (laughs) their biology is convenient to me because i can watch them age and observe all of these torturous effects more quickly (laughs) yeah i mean so that is all true and then because of that like factor and how common they commonly available they were they were studied more and more and so because of that you then now have this body of research that's like oh you know we used a mouse this mouse model or this rat model um and so now it's become like this it's built upon itself it makes it more convenient and more useful to use a mouse or rat model uh because you now can compare to previous results you know how they're going to behave etc and then with the advent of genetics and us 
fully understanding the genome of mice and rats, it became even more useful because those things could be toyed with (laughs) or tweaked, (laughs) tweaked, tweaked is the better word. (laughs) So without a doubt, there are ways to conduct animal research in morally reprehensible ways. And prior to like the 1970s-ish, that was quite frankly the majority of animal research. I I think um, from a modern lens, a lot of animal research prior to like the 60s or 70s, we, we would find just absolutely unethical because those standards and the regulations simply weren't there. Right. And I, those standards and the regulations, and I think the understanding, as, as people did more research on animals and worked more closely with animals in this way, I think people started to better understand how animals like process and react to certain types of experiments and certain types of stimuli, and also just like humanized the animals a bit further, I think. Right. And so right now, anyone at an academic institution or even private companies that want to conduct animal research, need they need to have what is called an IACUC, I-A-C-U-C. And that stands for Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And these are mandatory for any organization conducting animal research with uh, federal funding. It's important to note here that animal does not include invertebrates, so bugs, lobsters, crabs. Uh, sorry, people get to be as cruel to you as, as they want. <laughs> Which, I mean, we accept as a society, or at least U.S. society too, right? Like people live lobster cooking and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, quite frankly, we just yeah, we just don't like bugs that much. <laughs> like that's, that's it. Yeah. And there's also a scientific basis for it. Invertebrates like lobsters and stuff, they do have receptors that will respond to external stimuli, but invertebrate nervous systems are just so like basic and simplistic. They don't really have brains. They just have like large ganglia that are their equivalent of brains. And so those very basic nervous systems are not capable of the cognitive complexity that translates that like stimuli into like suffering or pain. It's basically just the equivalent of like a check engine light on your car. But, you know, your car isn't suffering, I guess. I don't know, man. I, I humanize my car, too. So, <laughs> Yeah, that is fair. I have a very utilitarian view of cars. <laughs> um, so why don't we just do experiments on invertebrates then, right? We all accept that they don't count. Well, so the reason that that is true because of how simple they are, that's also what limits their utility. I think on this podcast, we sort of have a bias towards like either brain-computer interface or translational neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And simply put, invertebrate models have limited translation to human physiology outside of like maybe some peripheral nerve modeling. Yeah, exactly. And so these types of organisms were really useful in understanding how really basic neuroscience works, right? Like how a neural cell works and fires and... Giant squid axon, right? Yeah, exactly. How it communicates activity. Uh, But beyond that, because they don't have brains, they're just not, from a neuroscience perspective at least, they're just not similar enough to people uh, to translate well. Yep. Sometimes you just need mammalian cortex. (laughs) Yeah. So in any case, so I have filled out a few IACUC applications before, and I'm sure you have as well, Nick. Yeah. 
So we are as complicit in this as anybody. So, so um, any research involving animals requires an application to the institutional IACUC, and you need to outline the protocols, your controls, and the numbers of animals you're questing, and most importantly, the measures taken to minimize animal suffering. Yeah, and, and animal, well, I guess you already commented on it, waste, right? So it talks about experimental efficiency. It is another way to minimize suffering. So it's both within how the experiment's done, but also how many it's done on. Right. To your point, you have to justify to this IACUC, which is generally composed of veterinarians and ethicists and scientists that are in the fields that would be would require research. So they're generally a diverse group, and their sole remit is to ensure that animal research is done in ethical way or as ethically as can be done and still answer the scientific questions. Which does involve a risk-benefit ratio, basically, of the scientific question itself, too. you got to be asking impactful enough or interesting enough stuff to justify it. Exactly. And so you have to justify that those questions can cannot be answered unless you use those animals. If they can be answered using like, I don't know, like, you know, cell lines, uh, cultured from something, or like even like, you know, modeling, then you shouldn't be using animals for that. And the IACUC should say, you don't get to use animals for that. And in addition to that, to your point about waste, you also need to justify that the number of animals you request is the minimum amount necessary to power the study. Because p-values are a thing and you do need sufficient numbers, but it's unethical to just use animals for the sake of using more animals. So despite all these controls, simply due to the nature of the scientific questions being asked, sometimes there's still some like profoundly f***ed up things being done to these animals. Usually it's rodents, like um, fear conditioning, the classic mouse forced swim test. And even for somebody like me that is generally pro-science and understands the reasoning behind why those things are done, it's still profoundly uncomfortable uh, for me to think about at times. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the experiments, they're there to cause fear or pain because that's what we're evaluating, right? So you're you're testing a new painkiller. This is how you start it. Or you're testing something that deals with anxiety. Well, you have to cause anxiety first. And they do these through all sorts of different means. Some of the tests that can have aspects of them replaced have started to have it replaced in more like ethical ways. So for example, like things that test um, persistence or exhaustion don't have to be tested with swimming, but they can be tested with treadmills now or something, which is less horrific. But some of these things are just horrific by the nature of their question. Right. And um, you know who you are. (laughs) Fear researchers, all of you. (laughs) So not all these experiments are done with mice and rats, of course. As Nim showed us, there are other animals as well. All those monkeys, those poor monkeys. So uh, monkeys or non-human primates, as they're called in research, obviously attract a lot of attention because they're higher intelligence. They seem more human-like, right? Uh, We can look at a monkey and see it behave a lot like a human and that causes us more distress to see that. And for this reason, a lot of non-human primate research has been reduced over the years in various ways or protected uh, even further. So 
non-human primate research has been consolidated a bit more. So fewer labs have access to it. And there's like kind of central like labs of excellence, as they're called, or centers of excellence that handle majority of primate research. Uh, Measures have been taken in the EU to reduce non-human primate research, etc. But the response in some ways is that this research just moves to places that do allow it and happens there instead. And this is because these are the only animal models that are viable for certain types of research. So like these animals have opposable thumbs. They can do certain types of motor control tasks. <laughs> they can respond to like more complex cues and systems that a human could interact with, whether those be like touch screens or other like forms of language. And so all of this together means that this research still needs to happen. It's just even more tightly controlled. You were barred access to Oxford's monkey facilities, weren't you? Yeah. So speaking of this research being tightly controlled, it's actually tightly controlled on two ends, I could say. One of them, of course, is that governments, organizations like IACUC's uh, ethics bodies try to reduce the amount of non-human primate research that happens and make sure that it's done even more excellently. That is, these like animals are given better facilities, etc. But also... Because it's such a controversial topic, a lot of ethics groups, PETA, for example, will try to basically out researchers who work with primates. And so there's been a lot of incidents where basically outsiders try to sneak into labs to document things, sometimes out of context, sometimes not, uh, to paint the organizations like NIM as evil organizations. And so there's kind of like this... I guess, institutional backlash against that by like locking down these facilities and making it hard to get into them and see how they work. And somehow, because of my affiliation with animal rights groups or something, I am prevented <laughs> from going to Oxford <laughs> for this very reason. I am on Oxford's blacklist. <laughs> yeah, despite being allowed to basically any other primate facility you had to visit through the years <laughs> yeah exactly been to hundreds of monkey labs and uh banned from oxford yeah and that's not to say that labs and institutions always get it right there are incidents of 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 neglect and and those are not good those need to not happen it's unconscionable yeah and i think that's the purpose of trying to consolidate these more is to make these places easier to inspect and document and control because at least my experience with these incidents of neglect is it's like smaller labs that maybe don't have like the facilities to like maintain like better enrichment places uh, for the primates or have more primates so that a, a primate doesn't spend as much of their time in experimentation etc. Because that's what iCook will also like regulate is for a primate, like how much of their day are they doing like tests and tasks versus how much of it are they doing like monkey stuff? Right. Like I, I think most iCooks will mandate that they have what they call enrichment time, <laughs> which is basically like they're spent just like playing or like watching cartoons and all that stuff. So it's, I mean, we both have interacted with a lot of primate researchers and um, and I think basically they all care about their animals and they all want to do the right thing while doing their research. Yeah, that's definitely true. I have not met, uh, like evil 
primate researcher who seems to like take any sort of joy from the condition of the animal or the like conditions of the experiment. And I mean, for the most part, the non-human primates in many labs lead like actually good lives. Like they have a lot of enriching activities and they get to do cool, like memory games, and like whatever else that they participate in. But that's not always true. Like Stephen said. Yep. And, you know, we, we do need to point out that there are many things, there are many treatments, there are many drugs, there are many therapeutics that simply would not be possible without animal testing. And also, like, animal testing is the alternative to human testing, which is even more unquestionably unethical. It's a good, I mean, it's an interesting point, because I think a lot of people who dislike animal testing would argue that human testing is mm-hmm. consent ethical inter it can, it's all about consent. Exactly. And I think the most horrific <laughs> human testing experience have, have been those without consent. Um, but it's the same thing for animals, right? Animals aren't consenting. Right. It, it's true. But at the same time, like I think it would be difficult to get humans to consent to the sort of extensive preclinical, like background work that needs to be done to establish. Yeah basic parameters for these treatments and therapeutics that are still kind of in their infancy. Yeah, exactly. The, the amount of unknowns and like types of consequences that can happen in early clinical exploration wouldn't be tolerable even with consent. And the only people that would be consenting are people who probably shouldn't be or can't be consenting actually to those because the risk is just too high. One of the, Examples I always I always think about is blue baby syndrome, a congenital heart defect that up until the 20th century caused a lot of neonatal death. And a group of surgeons at Vanderbilt and Johns Hopkins developed a, a treatment for it, a shunt, um, a, a surgical procedure. But in doing so and in perfecting the clinical workflow and the procedure, they had to use 200 dogs to to get to that point. And that is a very difficult thing to think about for people, you know, like us who like dogs and cats. That is, it's hard. Uh, I, you know, I, I have a cat, as I think listeners probably know, and um, I have had to interact with customers who do like spinal work in cats, and th- that is a very difficult thing. But, but you know, in the case of this shunt and this workflow, like it basically cures blue baby syndrome. And so, you know, you think about how many, you know, neonates had their lives saved due to this. And it's not, and you can't boil the world down to simply cost benefit ends justify the means, but you do have to think about the end effects of, of, and the positive effects of where these treatments go and the lives that they affect. Yeah. And I think the best, the facilities that I see treat their animals the best somehow also seem to acknowledge this fact the most. So like, uh, it's a weird one to point out, but there's a small college in Massachusetts called Wellesley. Uh, it's an all women's school. <laughs> yeah. It's and, one of the seven sisters. The, yeah. Of, oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like that Bryn Mawr, Vassar, Wellesley, Oberlin. How many have I named? Like four. <laughs> Uh, uh. so those are the most well-known four of the seven sisters (laughs) apologies Uh, to the other three 
but like Wellesley is an example. Like they have all sorts of like documents uh, or posters basically throughout their hallways, basically like honoring and reminding all the students that like, you know, the mice that they're using in their research are like a really important step to translation and they bring all these benefits and they should be like revered for this basically. And mm-hmm. to me, it seems like it, it causes everybody to treat them with like more respect, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, these are, these are lives like they should be respected. Yeah. So, um, well, that's enough of that. Let's get back to talking about this movie. <laughs> we, oh crap. That's not any more cheerful. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, like we're about to get to the sad part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so the rats agree to help move Mrs. Brisby's home, and Jenner plots to arrange an accident that will kill Nicodemus, allowing him to seize power. Now I forget why Mrs. Brisby needs to drug the cat for like the plan to work, but she does indeed need to drug the cat for the plan to work. And she volunteers it for it to be her because I guess as a mouse, she is less likely to be caught than a rat, I guess, because they're smaller. But this turns out not to be true because she manages to get caught by one of the family's children under a bucket. And I don't know if anyone's interacted with mice in any relevant way. That is a profoundly difficult thing to do. Mice are incredibly fast and nimble. Yeah, skilled kid. Or Miss Brisby is not good at being a mouse. I don't know. She is caught and caged in the house as a pet, fortunately, instead of being fed to the cat. Oh, one thing I want to notice in one of our first interactions with Dragon, when the farmer's wife is like petting Dragon outside the house or something, she's like, I've never seen a cat sleep so much. I feel like this is a reference to this cat being always freaking being drugged oh, by the rats. Shit. You're right. I was like, cats sleep all the time. Like, what is she talking about? But it, yeah, it's probably just being drugged constantly. Though that is also true. Cats sleep a lot. So anyways, as she's in the cage, Mrs. Brisby overhears Nim calling the farmer and learns that Nim will be sending exterminators to kill the rats. The farmer's just like, all right, whatever. <laughs> like the farmer still doesn't care. He's just like, fine, you'll do this for free. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Mrs. Brisby manages to escape. Yeah, she she has to take more creative measures. And during this whole movie, like, even though Miss Brisby has gone on many adventures, <laughs> she is painted and shown as, in many ways, like a timid, fearful mouse, like mice are. And so to, like, face her fears has been, like, a challenge, but she's had to, like, do it every step of the movie, which is, like, the only positive thread <laughs> that continues throughout the movie. And then she has to do it again here. But in this this time, it's a little bit more... You can see her character growth because she like tackles this a bit more head on than she has other things. Right. She basically like somehow worms her way through like the water dish or something out of the cage and manages to make her way out. Yes. It's like one of those indoor outdoor pools, you know, where you have to like swim under the barrier. She had to do that. Uh, What? That's a thing. Okay. You go to like a fancy hotel. It's an indoor part of the pool, outdoor part of the pool. There's a glass barrier between them for some reason, and you can swim under it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. That sounds kind of cool, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so it's that, except it's her water dish. And if you know anything about mice, know this. They really don't like water. (laughs) It's a basic part of, like, fear conditioning and, 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 like, exhausting mice in experiments. So... 
rats. So the rats also are beginning the process of moving the Brisby's house with like this big, elaborate pulley crank contraption. Yeah, it is a process. (laughs) This like blew me away. I thought the rats were going to come like lift her house. Like, obviously, we knew there was going to be a pulley system earlier than this. But like, I thought it was going to be like the rats are going to like shove her house to the side. So it's on the other side of the rock. No, this is like a whole excavation crane process. Oh yeah. They have they like have this big crane and it's powered by like 20 rats pushing like cranks and stuff. And so in all of this, Jenner is kind of off to the side and with the assistant of a reluctant crony. This crony seems to be having doubts about doing this. Uh, he doesn't want to kill Nicodemus, but despite this Jenner arranges an accident that brings this cinder block and this whole machinery down on top of Nicodemus. I want to emphasize that the children are inside of the cinder block this whole time. <laughs> that is their home and they are st- stuck in there or in there willingly. I, I don't know. They're in there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, I mean, nobody seemed to tell them that, hey, we're engaging these rats. They're going to help move their house in a way that doesn't kill Timmy. Somehow, given that the rats were able to like create a bathosphere, I just wonder whether it wouldn't have been more productive to just like put Timmy inside like a, a another box, like a hospital bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like I don't know, wheel him over in a way that he's not exposed to the awful um, chill, as Frisbee put it. Okay, we are told that these rats have become far more intelligent than all other animals, but so far as I can tell, all other animals are just basically sentient, anyways. Yeah, they all talk. They all have little cook fires and homes with items in them and they whatever. Yeah. So like what exactly did these things do to the rats other than, I don't know, make them literate? How different are these rats really? Because Mrs. Brisby did not have this treatment. And then she was like, Jonathan taught me to read. And also, who taught the rats how to read? Reading isn't a skill you learn by, like, just getting injected with stuff. Like, somebody has to teach you to... Do not get me started on the cognitive enhancement of the rats. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They can just suddenly read because they're smarter. What does cognitive enhancement really even mean for a rat brain? What is that? What is that? Oh, I mean, what does cognitive enhancement mean for a human brain? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, people argue about it all the time. Uh, whether it's an increase in working memory or whether it's just like longer memory retention or whether you can like have increased focus. Cognitive enhancement is like a kind of shady, weird, vague thing anyway. But then in rats, it's especially strange. And the only explicit two things the rats mention is that they can read and that they live longer. Yes, Nicodemus does mention that. I have so many questions, but... um... (laughs) Just making them more physically robust. Okay, whatever. They gave them like, I don't know, super soldier serum. Like they're all Captain America rats. Fine. But I don't know in what way they are more intelligent than inherently intelligent than Mrs. Brisby. Because so far as I can tell, they simply are not. And also, did Nim give Nicodemus his magic powers? We don't know. (laughs) I mean, I assume he was already a magic rat. Yeah, and if that's the case, then that's much cooler than being an intelligent rat. <laughs> I would ra- I would way rather be like a dumb wizard rat than like a really smart, like non-magical rat. True. The other notable thing is that like Miss Brisby does not comment on the fact that she noticed that her husband was like a super genius mouse, right? Like, yeah, he taught her to read or whatever, but she never like 
it's not an unusual point to her, obviously. Maybe that's the reason that they have fire, because Jonathan was able to bring fire to this house. Whoa. But if he was so smart, why didn't he build their house somewhere where it wouldn't get destroyed by a plow? <laughs> nice own. Yeah, suck it, Jonathan. <laughs> not only are you dead, you built your house in a place that placed your children and your wife at risk. <laughs> I guess the elaborateness of the rat city underneath the rosebush, like, kind of shows us the capabilities of these rats as well, as well as, like, just the machinery and stuff. Well, and they have all this, like, societal organization, right? Like, Miss Brisby lives in some weird, like, kind of, like, villagey city of, like, people who only set up apparently temporary homes because moving day happens. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the rats live in this, like, permanent facility with like a society around it like they have organization right they have like they were having debates in their great hall <laughs> when miss brisbee showed up and they're basically like renaissance era rats i guess that's what they're kind of like showing. yeah they're wearing like tunics and stuff <laughs> yeah i don't think any of them wear pants though they're all like it's all the donald duck just the top and then all everything on the bottom is just hanging out there not that you see anything but <laughs> not that you see what were you saying yeah, you don't see anything. <laughs> so Flippin' Jenner is standing near the rat contraption crank and is basically like, hey, pal, let's kill Nicodemus by chopping this rope. And his pal's like, I would rather not do that. And Jenner's like, we're doing it. And then he chops the rope. And the home, which is a cinder block full of Miss Brisby's children, falls and crushes the magic king rat. <laughs> That does not happen in the book. I'm like almost certain of that. <laughs> in the book, when they move the uh, house, it just happens. Oh. I'll get to kind of the effed up part at the end. So just as Nicodemus gets crushed, Jenner seizes power and is about to lead the rats back to the rosebush. But Mrs. Brisby arrives, learns of the accident and is horrified. But despite this, is able to warn the rats that Nim is coming the next day to kill the rats. And Jenner doesn't like this because... His whole goal, for some reason, is to keep the rats in the Rosebush area. He does not want to go to Thor- Thorn Valley. I am Jenner. I want to live with electricity and internet and modern comforts. I don't want to go camping and living in rural areas. But the the rats' goal is to move somewhere they can create their society independently. They're going to go create, like, whatever, power plants and stuff and live in thorn valley (laughs) yeah good for them yeah so jenner tries to attack mrs brisby pulls out a sword oh yeah they have swords renaissance era rats (laughs) there's an extended and and very well animated sword fight between justin and jenner and in this process jenner just kills his accomplice like just fatally wounds him by slashing him across the chest quite deep there is blood in this movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Justin gets the better of Jenner in this sword fight and Jenner like surrenders or something and Justin is addressing the rats and then Jenner's about backstab Justin. But Jenner's former accomplice who has been seemingly fatally wounded manages to grab a throwing knife because he has that, I guess. And he's a skilled knife thrower. <laughs> throws a throwing knife at Jenner, throws it into his back and kills Jenner. And then things get worse. <laughs> which has basically been the trend for the whole movie but so during this whole rat fight 
Miss Brisbee is obviously distracted. And when she turns her attention back to her home, which, remember, had recently crushed the magical rat wizard, the home is sinking into the mud. Oh, yeah. Like, it's raining heavily during this whole thing, by the way. I don't think we made that clear. The movie shows you, like, the mud levels rising inside the house as, like, the Brisby children are, like, struggling to keep their heads above, not even water, above mud. Yeah, it's, it's really horrific. <laughs> like, it's, it's disturbing and, like, anxiety-inducing. And so the cement block sinks into the mud, and you see it sink into the mud, and you see bubbles come up from the mud. And you're just like, oh my god, Don Bluth killed these mouse children. <laughs> Don Bluth did it. It was him. Just as this, we have the deus ex machina, or where the amulet activates. It gives Mrs. Prisby magical power. She literally goes Super Saiyan. Like, it is animated exactly like that. Yeah. She, like, glows all golden and levitates. And she grabs the rope to the house and like the rope lights up and then she just levitates the house out of the swamp and all the rats are just kind of like ah shit that was pretty crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah the rats are surprisingly unfazed by this (laughs) but the family is safe next day the rats leave for thorn valley everyone lives happily ever after so in the book nicodemus does not die jenner is not a thing the plan to move the move the house just kind of happens and succeeds but the problem is the exterminators from Nim are there. And so basically a group of rats and I and my mem- and I don't know if this is the case but something in my memory is telling me that Justin was among of them. A group of rats basically volunteers to stay behind at the rosebush as the exterminators arrive to sell the idea that they were wiped out because the idea is that Nim will never stop coming for them. Mm, that's pretty messed up. Yeah, and so a group of rats, like, sacrifices themselves to, to sell the lie that, like, the rat colony was wiped out and that Nim will leave them alone. That's the, like, f***ed up part that I was, like, preparing you for in the pre-sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. You're like, things don't end well for the rats of Nim. The only <laughs> people who had things end well for them were the rats of Nim, besides the Kadeemans dying. Yeah, but, I mean, there is... A happy ending. I mean, it was a process to get there. And Nicodemus dies, which is, you know, bad, but there is a happy ending. It's true. And you can't say that the happy ending is unearned. True. Yeah. Uh, Miss Brisby definitely deserves her home on the Lee of the Stone, or whatever the owl called it. So let that's, that's the movie. And I, I already ranted a little bit about cognitive enhancement, but just just to touch on it here, I mean... What what is possibly happening with this injection? What is it? I have no idea. And to be fair, I I did not actually spend that much time looking into it because I spent most of my non-watching time like scribbling down animal research ethics notes. <laughs> Which is important and is the real takeaway from this. But the note on cognitive enhancement is that, I mean, as far as humans have understood the function of the brain seems like some focus of their time has been on cognitive enhancement. It's like a common subject within neuroscience. It's like a question in translation. It's something that apparently appeals to the public. There's all sorts of like cognitive enhancement, nootropics and drinks and supplements that exist out there. Oh God. Uh, What's that stupid ass thing that that podcasts always promote? Alpha brain. That's it. Isn't that a Tim Ferriss drug? 
I don't what? Know. I don't know. I just know that I just remember it being like a meme on like podcast things where like uh, Dude, um, we should get sponsored by Alpha Brain. Come on. <laughs> I mean, not after uh, not after this episode. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to like spoil all of it. Like we've we've tried tons of different. And by we, I mean humankind has tried tons of different methods ranging from drugs to genetic alterations to electrical stimulation to uh, behavioral like training and like cognitive training. Um, None of them have been super impactful as far as super intelligence goes. Honestly, like your cup of coffee or caffeine tends to do just as well as any of these things. They have like varying effects. Like there's no superhuman brain, like all reaching cognitive enhancer. You have drugs that give you better memory, but they have a trade off of something else. Or you have something that gives you better attention, but it trades off of something else or gives you seizures or blood clots or stroke. And uh, the same goes for all of these other kind of like methods. Uh, There's some some evidence that electrical stimulation can improve focus and uh, learning a little bit. It's all there. It's all real. But there's nothing that's gonna you're gonna inject into yourself to become a a new level of <laughs> rat brain. <laughs> you you can't make rats read <laughs> through an injection. <laughs> just have to, it's not happening. But yeah, that's the that's the spo- that's the kind of like sad spoiler <laughs> to the state of research on cognitive enhancement. Right, and you know what I think as a society and as a species, we should be okay with that because much like something like genetic enhancement, there are serious ethical questions that come with uh, access to that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, So I think we should all appreciate that. Um, Obviously there are things that cognitively enhance those that have cognitive deficits so rescuing lost function in the brain is is possible. There's drugs and other treatments that will make somebody, you know, who has any form, I guess, of cognitive deficit you can name. There's improvements to all of them through these means. But there's really nothing that goes superhuman that much. So enjoy the humanness <laughs> that that brings. So I guess that brings us to our tomato meter, or uh, as I referred to it once, tomato meter, tomatometer, <laughs> tomatometer. I am going to rate this three dead rats because that is a number of dead rats in this movie. I don't know what my scale is actually. I think the book was eight dead rats. I'm, I'm just going to say like eight. So three out of eight dead rats. Three out of eight. Yeah, That's bad rating, man. Well, no, because you want as few dead rats as possible, remember? Come on, didn't oh, you get sure. the entire point of this uh, episode? I missed the animal ethics part, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I actually really appreciated this movie in that like, it takes its audience, presumably children, very seriously and places a lot of trust in its audience that the things it's presenting to them are something that is acceptable and something that they can handle. And I think that's something that often children's films and animation misses and just tries to bombard children with, you know, like gags and constant bits and bright colors. And I appreciate that. The neuroscience of it, yeah, like you said, you know, the full cognitive enhancement, nah, not a thing. Uh, What do I rate this movie? I actually, like, honestly, I didn't like it that much. (laughs) 
<laughs> it, what I will say is it's, it is not necessarily enjoyable. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, it has some of the frivolity in that. Like there's a lot of scenes of the movie that don't really progress the plot necessarily. Like every scene with Jeremy <laughs> and there's like, yet not with any of the joy that would normally come with those types of diversions. <laughs> I feel like. So uh, does that mean that I give this one out of 11 for the uh, uh, mice surviving mice? And I think partially because the movie so takes such a hard stance on all animal research is evil and does not acknowledge the intricacies of that argument. It's true. And uh, I, I'll contradict myself uh, what I just said just now, where I was saying that this movie trusts its audience and trusts that it can handle dark things. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily trust the idea that it, they can handle the nuance of the ethics of animal research, because it is a nuanced topic and not black and white. Oh, I just realized uh, we messed up our order. Neuro and near all moments. So I will just go ahead and take the sad animal montage as my Nero moment because how the home cages are depicted and like how they are housed is uncomfortably close to uh, reality. True. So that's your Nero. Oh, as in like, oh, wow, you went there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess. Nero. <laughs> uh, I know jumping back and forth for me is the mice being sucked down the vent shafts. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> that was terrible. Yeah. So that's it for our episode on the secret of Nim. Uh, I think this movie took us both by surprise in somewhat different ways, but I think it was a catalyst for a long overdue discussion on animal research ethics. And I think that brings us to my takeaway, which is that we would not know nearly as much as we do about how neuroscience works without animal research. And, you know, we need to do that in a way that is as ethical as possible. Right. And I think the other takeaway from this is cognitive enhancement is a ways away. So enjoy your coffee and uh, stay sharp. Great. So there you have it. Thank you everyone for joining us. If anyone has any questions and you are not PETA trying to flame email us for not being completely objecting to animal research, if you're not PETA, feel free to email us at narrativespodcast at gmail.com. That's N-E-U-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Nick, for joining me. This was a movie I don't think I will watch again, but I did find worth watching yeah i'm glad i watched it it was a good topic uh never seeing it again thank you <laughs> no more questions <laughs> and thank you to everyone who tuned in and we'll see you next time 